Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for joining us. And today on our show, a new look at evolution from a guy who was recently called the man who may one-up Darwin. I mean, I think that's quite a bit of hyperbole and sort of a distraction. Well, I'm trying to plug a radio show here. Come on. But biophysicist Jeremy England is right. It is hype. And it's not even on point, because his ideas in no way upstage Darwinian evolution. They just give it a helpful bump, a little kickstart. See, Darwin's theory of natural selection tells us how life can evolve once you have life, but it does not tell us how you get life in the first place. How did dumb molecules, mere bits of lurching, aimless matter, get together, link arms, and start dancing a very elegant dance? I mean, it seems like such a huge, almost unimaginable leap. You know, a bunch of bricks do not assemble themselves into the Royal Albert Hall, and uh, you could stir a pot of alphabet soup till you're long in the tooth, but do not expect the letters to spontaneously spell out the Gettysburg Address. And yet somehow, way back when, life's building blocks did organize themselves into life, something way more complicated than the Albert Hall or the Gettysburg Address. And scientists have long struggled to explain how all the parts could have fallen into place in what seems like a a really extreme case of serendipity. Which is why Jeremy England's new theory is generating so much buzz, because he says the journey from simplicity to complexity is not a matter of blind luck. Thanks to the immutable laws of thermodynamics and statistical mechanics, under the right circumstances, according to England, matter might have a built-in tendency to get organized, to start doing things on its own, and adapt to its environment. In other words, the transition from physical things to biological things may not be such a great leap after all. Jeremy England has spent a lot of his life thinking about the relationship between physics and biology, so uh, it's not so surprising he became a biophysicist. I think what was really fun and exciting always about theoretical physics was the idea that you can take a few simple assumptions about the system you're trying to describe and you can actually make many predictions or you can explain many different phenomena as being different aspects of some underlying process. That's always a very uh, exciting thing to witness in the areas where theoretical physics is especially successful. But then I think with biological systems, what they have is this idea of form and function, that when you look at biological systems, you have these things like cells or proteins or organelles or what have you that have apparent purposes. Uh, And there's something really interesting in its own right about trying to understand how that purpose is accomplished and how also something that starts off not seeming to have any kind of purpose can, when it jumbles together with a bunch of other things that don't seem to have any purpose, that suddenly the way that they're behaving as a whole suggests to us a direction or a goal or, you know, a different kind of teleology. It's interesting you say that. Uh, I was uh, talking to the philosopher Daniel Dennett uh, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and he was saying something similar in a way, that uh, when you go from let's say, particles to life, you have to change your terminology. You have to change the whole scope of your analysis from simple laws, like, say, Newton's laws of motion, to uh, language that implies purpose and function. Exactly. Do you have to do that, or is that just an easier way to talk about living things or a more familiar way? Oh, I think it's a, a fundamental issue in what biology is and what physics is and what distinguishes them. And I always like to illustrate this point by talking about a simple thought experiment that you could do in the grand, in the grand tradition that physicists have of endangering cats in their thought experiments. You're going to kill a cat. Right, yeah, exactly. You take a cat, uh, you could go to a tall building, and you throw the cat off the building. And if you wanted to, you could ask how fast the cat is moving when it hits the ground. And that is a sensibly defined physical question because it expresses itself in terms of distances and times and forces and energies and things like that. Or you could ask with the same cat whether it survives the ordeal, whether it's alive afterwards. The point that this thought experiment, as ridiculous as it is, is making is that we're talking about the same system and the same experiment, but 
We can either ask how fast something's moving, or we can ask whether it's alive afterwards. And while it's clear that one of those is connected to the other, right, how fast the cat is moving when it hits the ground clearly affects whether it survives. It is never going to be the case that asking how fast the cat is moving is the same thing as asking whether it's alive. They're just different ways of talking about the world. They're different languages. You're really speaking two different languages, and you need to know how to translate between them. And that always invokes the intuitive role of the translator in trying to match up those two different things and bring them together. You're particularly interested in that borderline where things cross over from being easily described physically to begging for a description that's more biological. We're talking about the origins of life, the initial hypothetical self-assembly that certain molecules went through uh, before they started, you know, collaborating and becoming organisms. That's where you've applied a lot of your uh, your work recently, and that's actually why I found out about you and why I'm talking to you. Um, mm-hmm. What systems, you know, of non-living matter, things we all would agree are inanimate, have some of the properties that we ascribe to living things, you know, like self-replication or high levels of organization? There's quite an old literature of looking at systems where you have lots of different pieces, like, say, lots of different grains of sand or lots of different air molecules or what have you. So you have a many-body system, as it's called. And there are lots of different ways of arranging those components. And when we look at how they behave in certain settings, we find that they end up arranged in ways that seem much more patterned and organized than we might have expected. When you find that these grains of sand have water being poured over them or wind blowing over them or something, then you get these branched networks or you get these dunes. You get these structures that they suggest to the eye that they're good at doing something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or at least they seem kind of organized or patterned in some way. And I think when you look at any of these things in isolation, snowflakes, hurricanes, what have you, you will often feel like maybe there's just some kind of coincidental mechanism here where, okay, so a hurricane looks kind of patterned or circular, but, you know, you don't want to call it alive just because it looks like slightly more organized than a typical cloud you would look at in the sky. Or Um, or a tornado which moves around and seems to be malevolent. Sure, sure, (laughs) right. So I I think that um, that being said, there definitely are a lot of systems where there are many-body systems, and they are crucially uh, what is called far from thermal equilibrium, meaning they're not just sitting at some temperature and fluctuating around, that there's some external drive, like there's you know, sunlight powering the flow of water and air in the atmosphere, or there is wind blowing over the sand, and so then it accumulates in these different shapes that we call dunes or something like that. Uh, there's some external drive, but then there's also some you know, bath at some temperature where you're, you're going to get some random fluctuation as well. I think there's a, a huge number of different systems where there's a kind of a striking complexity or organization that we see, and we don't necessarily want to say that's alive, and yet still I think the, the hope is that somehow there's a, a way of bringing those different phenomena under one big tent that might also include living things, and where we can get at the diversity of different structured and organized phenomena that we see by talking in some unified language that invokes some common assumptions about their physical properties. Okay. By the way, I'm thinking the word animal comes from animate, right? And I think that means to move. So mm-hmm. moving around was one of our earliest criteria for identifying things as alive, right? Uh-huh. uh-huh. And, and that gets yeah. at your, your maybe you know, fundamental physical point, that you need an energy gradient, right? Equilibrium, where everything's all the same, more or less nothing really does very much. There's just sort of random movement, if any. But to have sort of directionality, you need a gradient, right? You need more energy here and less there, or different forms of energy. Yeah, yeah, so there's some kind of flow. There's a, to give cats a break uh, in a thought experiment, you can make up a sort of statistical, thermodynamic, biophysical version of Schrodinger's cat, which I call Boltzmann's dog, which is very simple. You can just take a dog and you put it in a box and you close the box and seal it and you wait a trillion years and then you open the box and see if the dog is alive or dead. Uh, and I think no one has any sense of mystery about what should happen in that case. Right? Right. And what that points to is that any living thing 
is not at what we would call thermal equilibrium, where you just have all the different pieces of the system bouncing around and sharing the energy around in all the ways that they can. You need an open system with some kind of flow. You need, say, sunlight going in and heat going out. So there's some kind of directionality to it. And if you put that unfortunate dog in a box for a long, long time, it would be at equilibrium at the end of it all. It would just be a bunch of molecules, right? Just sort of completely disintegrated. Well, with great likelihood. I mean, I think that it always depends on your modeling assumptions. The crazy thing is that according to the modeling assumptions of, you know, the branch of physics that we call statistical mechanics, which is what we use to think about these kinds of systems, when you open the box, there's some probability that it will still be a dog. There's also some probability that it'll be a bunch of mice, right? So these are all these different ways of rearranging the same building blocks. But, yeah, I know, it's ludicrous, right? But, and, and so, I mean, clearly, any physical theory that says, you know, one time out of ten it's going to be a bunch of mice is going to be empirically proven false. But you leave open this possibility in principle because what it reminds you of is you should be asking, why do I expect, with all the different ways of arranging these components, that there are going to be some ways that are very likely in certain scenarios to turn out uh, a certain way and other ways that are not likely. What controls the difference between likelihood and unlikelihood uh, for these driven many-body systems? And that's something we've been starting to try to think about in my group. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. And this gets back to the guy you named your dog after. Was right. It Ludwig, uh, was it von Boltzmann or Ludwig Boltzmann? I, I think... There might be a fun in there if you want. <laughs> but he was he's really one of the fathers of statistical mechanics, the guy mm-hmm. who has the second law of thermodynamics engraved on his tombstone, and that is the law that says entropy increases. Uh, and so, most people I, I, I think I think he might actually have the statistical definition of entropy engraved on his tombstone, although I'm not sure. I've never visited it. But I, I think he may have S equals K log omega, which yes, you're right. Is, that is it is in some sense connected to the second law, but it's, it wouldn't be considered the simplest statement of it. Okay, well, thanks, thanks for that correction. But um, let's give your definition of entropy because that's really what you're talking about here. You know, when you talk about the likelihood of states mm-hmm. and the the vast unlikelihood of things going from messy to organized spontaneously, like mm-hmm. the dog disintegrates and then the molecules regroup themselves into a dog just by pure chance. Yeah, so entropy is a word that I think is more frequently used than it should be, perhaps, and and very often abused. Uh, And I think one really has to kind of cut through a lot of the uh, confusion about it and just say simply that rather than talking about entropy, maybe what we should just talk about is imagining the number of different ways that something can happen. Because entropy, once we use the word entropy, people start to talk about it like it's a ghost in the machine that has desires or that makes things happen. Uh, and I, I don't think it's really necessarily appropriate to say entropy makes things happen, but more so just that when we are invoking the idea of entropy uh, in explaining something, we're, we're using an abstract language to talk about why it's more likely that one thing should happen than the other. So the, the typical uh, scenario that we're interested in in my group is one where you have a bunch of particles, and they're sitting in some surrounding bath, say, of water or air that's at some temperature. And so what that means is that they're getting buffeted by a bunch of small molecular collisions by all these different molecules surrounding them all the time. And if that were all that was happening to you, then you would reach a state after a certain amount of time of what we call thermal equilibrium, where you just tend towards low-energy states more so than high-energy states because low-energy states are easier to get to because you tend to go downhill in energy. But then what you do is you start driving the system. Like you hit it with a hammer, you shine light on it, you do something where you're now doing work. You're dumping energy into the system, so you're helping to lift the system up out of low-energy states by another mechanism that's, in a sense, more patterned or more organized. And now the question is, how does this collection of matter respond? How do we expect it to rearrange itself over time? And the model, is that it's still quite a random process because you're still getting all these random kicks from the bath, but you have all these different arrangements to explore, and now it starts to be possible to argue that there's going to be a kind of a bias in the way you explore that space of possible arrangements. Well, again, let's back up and say the goal here, right, is to explain maybe some of the early steps that caused matter to organize itself, get its uh, stuff together, uh, mm-hmm. and, and start doing things uh, and actually become proto-life and then life. 
your model, which you described, and maybe you can boil down for us in even simpler terms, has molecules sitting in a kind of bath which supplies sort of random energy. And a warm bath could just be warm air or warm water. Uh, and then it also has some kind of oscillating driving energy, which could be sunlight. And I hope people are picking up that these could be conditions that existed, let's say, in the early days of Earth when life did originate somehow. Um, how do you put all those things together and start to see real complexity emerge just from physics? The basic idea here is just that when we put in the assumptions that you've described, we can make an argument using a mathematical formulation of those assumptions for why it is that you expect that over time there should be this inexorable march towards becoming organized in ways that seem to be good at anticipating the predictable parts of the environment that this collection of matter is experiencing. So normally we think about the adaptations that we see in the biological world that are very impressive to us in what one might call Darwinian terms, that if a living thing is good at something, and good at something that seems really difficult to be good at, like you need to be very specially formed in order to be able to absorb light from the sun and use it to power your growth, or in order to fly, or in order to do all these things that living things can do, that we usually think that in order to have that capacity, you have to have had parents and grandparents and the succession of generations where there are all of these different versions that are tried, and then certain ones are a bit more successful mm -hmm. in a given environment, and they end up reproducing more, surviving better. And when you propagate that forward, then you have this Darwinian mechanism for the emergence of adaptation. Sure, that's, think, that's natural selection. Sure. And that's the way we've explained the evolution of life after a certain point, after it's actually formed, and you've got some kind of information-carrying, inheritable molecule like DNA, and you've got an environment that's going to sort out the winners from the losers, you can imagine things, not just imagine, you can pretty much prove that things will change, and they will change in ways that result in adaptations, you know, and so on. But that starts at a point where things are already pretty complicated, right? Right, exactly. So, so that's the puzzle, is how do you get that process going? And I think what has uh, been somewhat frustrating is that you always have this chicken and egg issue as long as your explanation for complex adaptation requires some kind of self-replicating thing, a thing that makes copies of itself in the system. So I think what we have now is this generalization through the language of physics for the idea of how adaptation can arise, where we can now argue that even when you don't have things that copy themselves, these molecules or atoms or building blocks in your system are exploring the different possible arrangements available to them in a biased way, and they're constantly finding structures that are getting better at exhibiting behaviors that we would think of as being complexly adaptive. And we can see that if we look at the right physical properties in the system. So you might have thought that in order, for example, to make a collection of atoms that was very well suited to absorbing a particular color of light that is available in the environment, that you would have to wait until there was something that tried to use light to make a copy of itself, and then over successive rounds of Darwinian selection, it would get better and better at using that light to copy itself more effectively. But what we're trying to argue, rather, is that, no, you should be able to get the thing that's good at absorbing the light first, that that is like a tool that's floating around in prebiotic soup that is available given a particular environment to the first self-replicator when it bursts onto the scene. So what we're trying to argue is that there's maybe this more sort of incremental and inexorable march towards greater complexity that we should be able to predict just from basic physical assumptions where the system is constantly accumulating more information about how to eat energy from its surrounding environment, even before there is a self to self-replicate. Have you seen this uh, behavior in any simple systems? Yeah, so we have right now uh, the, the simple uh, model of this that we've been working with in simulation, which is a collection of you might call toy atoms that obey a set of toy chemical rules. So they just clump together in different ways. And the first thing that we've been looking at uh, is basically this issue that I was just describing, where you have a 
source of energy that you could imagine is sort of like light of a certain color, right? that it's you know, a drive that is oscillating at a certain frequency or a song that's going at a certain pitch, however you want to think of it. And then the question is just how does this randomly fluctuating clump of matter organize itself over time? And the unexpected thing, or I guess I would say the thing that we only expected once we had the theoretical model to make this kind of prediction, uh, is that these particles arrange themselves in ways that are particularly good at sort of being an antenna for catching the frequency in the environment that's available to get energy from. Mm. So you don't need selection in the normal sense. You don't need a kind of a Darwinian explanation in order to see a structure emerge that is very special and finely tuned to its environment uh, and that looks, in a sense, well-adapted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we're skipping, obviously, some highly technical um, steps in your explanation, which involves a lot of physics and mathematics and thermodynamics and things like that. But what you're saying is that there is this sort of ratchet-like effect from spontaneous ingredients that may push systems in certain directions, and those directions may lead to more complicated structures emerging, some of which may even be functional. That's, that's what you're beginning to describe there. Yeah, so I, I think that we still have a very long way to go in making the most convincing case that we can for this, uh, and, and we want to look at systems more complicated than what we're looking at right now. Uh, but I think that we have, at this point, a first proof of principle for this idea that there is this, as you say, ratchet-like bias in the exploration of random configurations that comes from essentially the fact that you move differently with the drive that's buffeting you in your environment, uh, depending on how you're shaped. And so you end up finding shapes that are special. Right. And I think um, what your theory, is it fair to call it a theory at this point? Sure. Okay. Your theory adds to what we already knew about things responding to their environments, uh, you know, and just being buffeted by forces. I mean, it's easy to imagine things being pushed around by wind or burned away by sunlight or eroded by rain, you know, that kind of thing. But what results from that at best is is some very simple structures, you know, ripples in sand dunes or waves on water, maybe crystals forming, things like that. But your model shows how things could get far more complicated than just some simple repeating pattern. Yeah, and I, I think that what's crucial to that part of the argument is that you need the environment that the system is experiencing to be complicated and, in a sense, difficult to predict completely. You know, if all your environment is is just oscillation at one frequency, you don't have to be that complicated in order to very accurately predict what's going to happen you know, because, essentially, your environment is just described by a single number or a single color or pitch or however you want to think about it. But when you're in an environment like the real world, which is very complicated and where there are lots of different fluctuations, some of which are more predictable than others, then if we still have the expectation that you're going to be biased towards finding structures that are good at predicting that environment, the argument then becomes that you should tend towards being complexly organized enough that you can be capable of being good uh, at that kind of predictive behavior. Uh, And I I think that I have to acknowledge that that's definitely still the more speculative part of what uh, we are uh, undertaking, and we are very excited to start exploring this. But I I think that um, we're still very much at the beginning of the road, uh, and there's a a lot more to be understood along the way. You referred to the fact that you've been sort of simulating this possible process in the lab using what you call toy molecules. You mean it's a computer simulation, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, that's But I imagine you're hoping to apply this ultimately to the things that actually were the ingredients of life on Earth, things like amino acids, for instance, that Mm -hmm. somehow formed proteins, or nucleotides that somehow formed DNA and RNA. Is that the ultimate um, hope, then? Well, I I guess I don't want to prejudge that too much, because I think that you can look at this different ways. In one sense... I think that our contribution uh, could be that we could call people's attention to the fact that there are certain complicated behaviors that we think of as being lifelike 
that it's a lot easier to get from systems that are clearly not alive than we had expected. And if we want to prove that, then I almost feel like we can do it more convincingly in settings where there's absolutely nothing in the system that looks anything like what real life is made of, uh, because then people will start to understand that this is just kind of a general mechanism uh, that I you see. could find in lots of different yeah. places. Yeah. And, and I also think that, um, you know, when talking about the, the actual prebiotic scenario, when you're trying to say, where did the life that we are come from specifically, you're always engaging in this, uh, I guess, sort of modeling exercise of trying to make up a story about the past that's consistent with what you're able to discern by sifting details in the present. And, you know, that can be an interesting exercise. But I don't think we're going to ever be able to say, this is the exact event that happened at the molecular level however many billion years ago in this one particular location. I, I think it's always going to be the case that there are going to be multiple competing models that seem to be equally consistent with what we can discern in the present uh, and you know our assumptions about the, the physical rules that you know, gave rise to all this. So in, in a sense, I, I'm more sort of trying to demonstrate in the present the feasibility of a certain process uh, so that people know how to judge what should be considered likely or unlikely to happen. And then if people want to use that to uh, to think about the past, then I, I encourage that. But I am not uh, myself necessarily um, aimed at, at digging into those exact details. A question that's always asked of people who come up with interesting explanations for how life might have originated from, uh, you know, chemical components. Well, uh, you've just explained how life orig might originate. Why aren't we seeing this happen all around us? The conditions you posit are ones that are all over the place. Warm baths of various kinds, oscillating fields of various kinds, energy, uh, and plenty of um, raw ingredients. What's your answer to that? Sure. So I, I think that that splits into two pieces. Uh, so one issue is that there's a very strong effect in evolution in general, which is that once something bursts onto the scene, it can really alter the landscape of how easy it is for something else to burst onto the scene again, right? So once you have a bunch of living things that have this genetic code with DNA, and they have proteins, and they have a membrane surrounding them, and they have all these different things that help them be really good at what they're doing, then it might be much more difficult for something seemingly equally complicated but very differently put together to flourish in any environment because there already are going to be a bunch of things competing uh. for the sources of energy there that are really well suited to uh, latching onto it and sort of crowding things out. So I think that that's part of what you might say is that um, we may just be very far down a road that's kind of difficult to walk back to some fork that you know, we may have been at a long time ago. You know, you're probably, you're probably aware of this, that Darwin came up with an explanation very much like that himself. Could I just pay a little tribute to Darwin by reading this letter he wrote to uh, a fellow scientist? Oh, yeah, no, please. Yeah. It is often said that all the conditions for the first production of a living organism are present, which could ever have been present. But if, and oh, what a big if, we could conceive in some warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity, etc., present, that a protein compound was chemically formed, ready to undergo still more complex changes, at the present day, such matter would be instantly devoured or absorbed, which would not have been the case before living creatures were formed. So he's saying exactly what you said, that this stuff in the early days wouldn't have had competition uh, and mm. might have gotten a foothold, whereas now, uh, if the same process were going on, uh, the little proto-life would get gobbled up smashed, st <laughs> trampled underfoot, right? Sure. The other thing that I will say, though, um, is that I, I do think there might be room for a little bit of a, a modification or augmentation of that point, which is that what we're uh, exploring in our research and, and the mechanism that we're proposing for emergent complexity uh, also suggests that there might be a lot of that going on just hiding in plain sight, but we're not looking for it in the right way yet, right? Because 
what I was describing before with this collection of particles that are clumping together, I know that I expect them to resonate well. Uh, and so then I look at that property of the system, and lo and behold, I find that it's as I predicted it to be. But if I just showed you this clump of atoms, and you didn't have an a priori reason to look at that property in the system, there are an infinite number of different properties of the system that you could make up or could explore or could examine that might not seem special to you. And so, you know, part of what may be at work here also is that there may be a lot of opportunities for us to see more organization or specialness to the way things end up being arranged uh, in a lot of different systems uh, that we already have studied or that are, you know, sitting around us in everyday life, but we haven't been examining the right physical properties. And it may not be that it's always equally easy to make up the experiment that will reveal that organization to you. So little bits of self-assembly and sort of directional evolution in you know, non-living systems might be happening all around us. We're just not noticing it. But we sure as heck would notice it if spontaneous generation occurred and new organisms were springing up, right? But I think, you know, part of this also has to do with the, the scales on which things are happening. So, you know, if you're an alien and you came to planet Earth and you knew nothing about it and you were kind of forced to look at it using limited means from a great distance away, then you see this big collection of matter, and there's a sun, and clearly there are some things that are moving around. And, you know, on the surface that you're able to see, you see clouds sometimes in one place and, and sometimes in another place. And when you think about, say, the entire city of Los Angeles, you know, uh, the, the fraction of that collection of matter that that represents is actually really tiny. Uh, and we think of the city of Los Angeles as being incredibly complex and incredibly organized and, and incredibly uh, interesting in its properties, but we you know, know it's there. We're looking at it on a different scale. But whether it would be noticed if someone was only looking in certain frequency ranges or only looking from a great distance away and only able to get low-resolution information about what was going on in the planet as a whole is a different question. So I, I think that that also is something we just have to be careful about, that um, there are lots of different scales that might be involved here, and uh, we may not equally have access to all of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, although in your story, I would I would assert that the aliens would immediately notice those things because uh, they, like us, are probably super fine-tuned to notice pattern, even in cases where it isn't there, like the supposed canals on Mars <laughs> that we believed in long ago. Yeah, so, so maybe... maybe um... Uh, the, the difficulty there is how do the aliens get where they are? <laughs> um, because you know, presumably they're 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 good at some things themselves in order to get there, and so then you know we'd expect them to have uh, some moves. Um, we talked about defining life, and it's it's hard because it involves uh, kind of a fuzzy set of characteristics that have to combine. Um, does your thinking provide any new definitions? I try to very much step back from any discussion of that kind, because I think that that has much more to do with the evolution of language and its common usage than um, about something I should be arguing for uh, from the standpoint of science. I think that the word life has a use right now. I don't have any kind of agenda to, to alter that usage, but I just think that when we try to break life down into the different things that it consists of, uh, we maybe could become better poised to recognize that there are, when I look at each one of those properties, going to be lots of examples of things that are clearly not alive to me, but clearly very successful at exhibiting that particular phenomenon, whether it's self-copying or sensing or whatever else. Um, Man-made stuff, machines... Mm -hmm. We can create stuff that might resemble life quite uh, convincingly to that alien, right, who didn't know mm -hmm. that this stuff was uh, fabricated. So a robot that, uh, you know, uh, runs on solar power, let's say, and moves around and does all kinds of seemingly purposeful things on its own. And there, mm -hmm. are, there are such uh, uh, drones, you know, roaming the earth right now. Um, mm -hmm. But is there a difference between those things and organic life, uh, aside from the fact that they they were, were created by other living things as opposed to arising 
from inanimate matter on their own? Well, I, I think, again, if, if we're trying to talk about this bare-bones physical description, then in our physical model, it's all just a bunch of particles with positions and momenta. But, of course, that's not the only account of the world in which one can say things that are, are sensible or useful or valuable or true. And so I, I think it, it, it makes a difference to us that certain things are made by us and other things are not. But there isn't a boundary between the things we have made and the things we haven't that is relevant to the attempt that one might make to make a general statement about the thermodynamics of driven collections of matter. Okay, so short answer, in a sense, we have created artificial life. I guess I wouldn't want to say that because I don't think that um, flying around is a sufficient condition for being alive, but we've certainly created many artificial things that look more like life to us than many of the things we find lying around on the ground. <laughs> You're probably wise to avoid the question of when life begins. And uh, and also, at the other end, uh, what is death? Has your thinking led you to any new ideas about that? Well, I, I mean, we haven't really gone very far down that road yet, and I think that's something one has to be very careful about in terms of making definitions. Interestingly, uh, some of the thermodynamic thinking that we've been doing, you know, we do think about processes that involve uh, some motion from one arrangement to another where you're more likely to go, let's say, from arrangement A to arrangement B than back from arrangement B to arrangement A. And the irreversibility of that, the, the fact that you're more likely to go one way than the other while in contact with the heat bath is connected with how much heat that you're evolving into the surroundings. So this is something that people started to really understand well in the last 20 years, theoretically, in um, the field of statistical mechanics. And, and we've been starting to try to think about that in various contexts in my group. So in a simple model, a very bare-bones model, you could say that given that I come to life in a finite amount of time, so it takes nine months, roughly, or however many years, depending on what you're categorizing as me being fully grown or what have you. It takes however much time it does to make me. And what I'm made of, then there's, in this modeling framework, some probability of it no longer being whatever I would categorize as me. Uh, and as long as that probability is held to be zero, then it means I had to basically use an infinite amount of energy to become me in the first place. So that at least points to the fact that there should be some non-zero probability of leaving the state that's me um, once I uh, have arrived there. But, you know, that also requires assuming certain things about uh, how your environment is fluctuating, and, and those assumptions can always be wrong. Any notion of randomness is always a modeling assumption rather than a fact. We look at things, and when they appear random to us, we get away with modeling them that way, but we never really know the difference between something random and something very subtly different from random. You know, Jeremy, if I ever need someone to issue a death certificate, I'm not calling you. Yeah. I, uh, I, I realize I'm, I'm wriggling out of making firm <laughs> commitments, but uh, I, I, I know I have to tread carefully here. Um, you, uh, you actually turned me on to an article that was written about you, and it described you know, a little bit of your personal life, uh, which I wouldn't normally pry into uh, when talking to a scientist about his theories, but it, it did raise some, some interesting questions about your perspective on things. It described the fact that you, though, I guess you were raised secular, but uh, at some point you became a pretty devout Orthodox Jew in your 20s. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, I'm sure people always wonder, how could a guy who's got such a mechanistic uh, view of life, I mean, any real scientist does, I'm sure, vitalism is long dead, the idea that there's some magical essence that makes things alive or some divine essence that makes them alive. But how do you, for instance, read Genesis? How do you, you study the Torah, how do you read, mm -hmm. how do you read Genesis uh, as a scientist? Well, I, I think that that's obviously a, a very long discussion and one that I love having, and I'm not going to be able to do any real amount of justice to it here, but I guess what I'll say is that you can approach a text in different ways. You can seek different kinds of relationships to it. Uh, and 
the important thing for me has been to discover in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, that if I treat it as though it was written by someone who knows everything, and I exert a lot of effort to try to make it make sense given that assumption, that I discover fascinating and subtle different discourses in it that connect with all the different things that I find interesting about, I don't know, philosophy or science or whatever else. So you can come to the text and you can say, oh, this was written by some idiot who was wrong. Or probably. multiple authors. And, and, and then, and then if, if that's your starting assumption, you can read it that way <laughs> and find that you're confirmed in that assumption. Uh, but if instead you say, all right, what, what, what would it mean to talk about the world in this way given that it also makes sense to talk about it in the way that I know it makes sense to talk about it, right? Like, I know I can shoot a cannonball in the air and predict where it's going to land using Newtonian mechanics, et cetera, et cetera. So given that that's the case, then what does it mean that there's a choice being made here in the text to describe the world this way? And I think what's, um, what's very interesting there is that you find that what the first things that God is doing uh, in Maseb Rishit, in the, the work of creation, is to describe the world and to make distinctions among things. So it starts with, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And I think the starting point there is that the light by which we see the world emanates from the way we talk about the world, uh, which is a notion that's actually echoed uh, in the philosophy of the 20th century uh, giant of modern philosophy, Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, who has this great quotation that the borders of my language are the borders of my world. Mm. And this gets back to some of what we were talking about before with biology as a language and physics as a language. There are different ways of talking about the same thing. And what the first work of creation amounts to, in a sense, is saying, okay, here's a dry expanse, and it is going to be called Earth. And that is inseparable from the action of creation of Earth, the naming of this thing that was kind of, in a sense, already a dry expanse before it was given a name, right? And then there's a firmament, uh, which is given the name the heavens. And that is also connected. So I, I actually see multiple echoings of, of this point that creation and naming are intricately intertwined. And then the other verbs that are used in creation are all about making distinctions between things, calling things, judging them, assessing them. I mean, it's, it's about how you develop a way of relating to the world by talking about it a certain way. So you can you can read um, those books of the Bible as kind of philosophical and figurative where necessary. How does that relate, though, to the other part of your religious experience, the part that I call devout and that might involve worship and prayer and belief? How do you square that? Well, I think that that is an even longer discussion, uh, and so I, I, I really I we'll shouldn't try that. to uh, deal with that in one sentence. The most concise thing that I can say is that I think what is important is how I speak and how I act, and I see purpose in the actions that I take and the sentences that I utter, uh, and those purposes are not necessarily the ones that might be imagined or attributed to those actions. You know, if someone else pulled off the street, we're going to be be trying to explain, you know, what is the value of prayer? Or what is the value of uh, a ritual? Um, I, I think that I, I, what I, I used to say this more often, but I, I think... Um, and I, there's this element of evolution of one's own perspective on these things, but I think it might still be fair to say, I don't know whether God exists, but I know what he expects of me. Mm. Hmm. What would be the scientific result of your work in the lab, let's say, that would most excite you? What's the thing that you kind of have your fingers crossed for? I guess what we're hoping in the coming years is that we can combine simulation and experiment to demonstrate in places people don't expect it that they 
can find very complicated behaviors like sensing and prediction and anticipation of a complicated environmental signal, and that this could be something that we wouldn't have really looked for without the right theoretical frame. Uh, but once we have it, uh, then you know, we can recognize there is something that uh, a general physical language might be able to help us understand about what is possible in principle in, in, in living things. And I, I guess you know, also, as far as an intellectual contribution, um, more generally when thinking about biophysics, I do think it's really important that people recognize that there are different languages for talking about the world, that you can talk about the world like a biologist, or you can talk about the world like a physicist, and that we shouldn't be looking for one language that captures everything. And if we, if we go for that, we're going to end up with uh, a black and white photograph of a rainbow, where we're going to be missing some of the best parts because we've chosen a single limited mode of representation. You know, you're reminding me of a subject that's been coming up in, in some recent interviews of mine, the relationship between the merely physical and sort of higher order stuff and the human and the fear that some people have that by describing things in physical terms, we are robbing them of their, their meaning, that we're reducing them to brute matter. And a way of thinking I've, I've been coming around to lately is that the problem is not that people are being reductionist. It's that we, the people who are afraid of this, are underselling the physical. Isn't it marvelous that the physical world itself has such amazing capacities and properties? I think that it's certainly marvelous to behold uh, the full array of different things that can be understood once we start delving into these details of how, how things fit together and, and how they might work. I guess my response to to that discussion might be just to say that the fact that we can make a model of something that breaks it into pieces doesn't remove the value or the importance of another level of description. It doesn't dethrone it in some sense. You know, the, I, I could say, oh, well, economics is all just quantum mechanics and electrostatics or something. <laughs> But that's a ridiculous claim, right? Because, of course, we also care about things like a potato and how much it costs or something like that. And there is no, uh, there's no substitute for having a different language that addresses itself to what's going on at that level. And so um, I, and I, that actually gets back to your other question, because I think that what I think is extremely important when looking at, let's say, the account of the seven days of creation in the Torah is that there are many different ways you can talk about the world. So why is it that this one gets top billing, right? Like if, if you assume that you're going to treat this book with, you're going to invest it with the authority that you would give to a God who made all the world, then why would it start out this way and not some other way? And I think part of the point may be that if it is important how we act and what we choose to do, and we're supposed to do things like not steal and not murder, et cetera, et cetera, then talking about the world as though it is made of particles with positions and momenta, while that may be effective and true for certain purposes, is not going to draw your attention to the right distinctions, right? The distinctions that are drawn in the seven days of creation are things like the difference between light and dark, or fish and birds, or land and sea, or men and women, that there are these basic categories of things that then give you a language for talking about how people get together and interact in this world where you might have the ability to discuss the question of whether someone should do something or whether they shouldn't. Uh, and, and so I, I think it's great to, to be able to give these different kinds of accounts of things. And, and also, that's why, and, and this isn't my point, there's a, a great point, I think possibly first made by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief rabbi in the U.K. for many years, that the story of the Tower of Babel is about this, right? That these people try to build a tower and they have just one language, that they have this kind of mm. material power that they're uh, expressing, and they have only one way of talking about the world. And they're not really punished for that, but God sends many languages to them, because one isn't enough. And 
that multiplicity of languages does make it, in some sense, more difficult for them to cooperate because they're all looking at different aspects of something now. But that is, in a sense, preferable to this complete unity of perspective and purpose uh, that the tower comes to represent. Well, Jeremy, thanks for this very multilingual conversation. It's been a pleasure. Jeremy England is a biophysicist and an assistant professor of physics at MIT. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And before I go, as usual, I like to note and uh, correct errors that I made during the interview. And one was where I speculated uh, that the word animal comes from animate, meaning to move. Uh, nice try, but not quite right. Uh, it comes from anima, which means breath. So animal is something that breathes. That is a little thing I wanted to set straight. Uh, but there's a bigger thing, too. When I got done with the interview uh, with Jeremy, I was haunted, dogged by the feeling that I did not coax a full explanation out of him on something that's really an important part of his theory, a crucial part. So I just had to get back in touch with him and ask him this. Um, we've described the kinds of conditions you think can give rise to complexity and in sort of inorganic systems um, that they become somehow adaptive and even predictive of the environment around them if they have the right inputs, which include some kind of structured energy source, which could be as simple maybe as uh, sunshine or some other oscillating energy or something like that. But I don't think we've explained really how molecules, for instance, could arrange themselves into patterns that um, are complex at all as a result of that simple input. Mm -hmm. I think of systems adapting to stimulation like this by finding really the most stable state, which is usually the lowest energy state. That intuition is correct when you're talking about systems that are not being driven. Then you just have this tendency to go to low energy. But I think what's precisely the point here is that when you have these drives in your environment that are pushing on you and trying to get you to move, that it's no longer the case that stability if we're going to use that word, corresponds to going to lower energy. Because really what we mean by stability is that you go into a shape and then you stay there, or rather I should say you, should, you adopt a shape and you stay in that shape for a while. You don't fall to pieces and end up in some different shape. So the question one has to ask is, why would it be that you would adopt a certain shape and then remain in that shape? And moreover, why would it be that there be some kind of directionality or bias in the progression of shapes that you jump through as you fluctuate around. And I, I guess what the answer comes down to is this. The thermodynamic argument is really about a relationship between heat production or entropy production or dissipation. These are all terms that are used. And what we might call irreversibility, the idea that you're more likely to go from A to B than you are to go back from B to A. But there's kind of a one-wayness to your motion. And, and the reason that those correspondences exist is basically because when you get pushed on by your surroundings, you pick up energy from that. And if you keep the energy in the system, then the system is just going to bounce around, and whatever carried it for me to be is still going to allow it also to flow back for me to A, because that motion is still there in the system. But when you lose that energy as heat to your surroundings, then suddenly you don't have it to go back the way you came. It's sort of like going up a ski lift and then skiing down the other side of the hill. And, of course, once you reach the bottom, you don't have the motion uh, that the ski lift gave you the potential for when it lifted you up. You've lost it. There's all this heat that you've dissipated in your surroundings. So the notion, I guess, would be that you're this skier who's wandering through this mountain range with ski lifts flung all around, and every so often you take a ski lift up and you ski down the other side of the mountain, and now you're just stuck. You can't go back the way you came. And if you keep doing that over and over and over again, you end up in this place in the mountain range where the story of how you got there is that you got a lot of work done on you. You did a lot of ski lifting. Uh, and then there was dissipation of the energy that that uh, work that was given to you uh, into the surrounding bath. And so you end up looking like a structure that has this special history of absorption of a lot of extra work from the particular environment that you experience. Now, that is reason why you expect to see things that look like they were good at absorbing work. As for the question of complexity, that's another point that gets even more subtle. The issue is this. Absorbing work is about moving well with your surroundings. 
And if all you have in your surroundings is, say, a song at a single frequency, at a single pitch, then you maybe don't have to be that complicated in order to move back and forth with a certain frequency. Lots of things oscillate and resonate to a certain degree. But if your environment itself has very complicated, yet still somewhat predictable fluctuation, then getting good at moving with that environment may necessitate yourself becoming very complicated in order that your internal components will essentially be instantiating enough of a complicated computation on your past in order to get you to behave in ways that are sufficiently predictive of your future that you can keep moving and absorbing work. So could we make it really concrete and and use uh, a physical system you've used in illustrating some principles in the past, which is a wine glass, a piece of Mm -hmm. delicate crystal that's being vibrated by, let's say, a soprano hitting a high note. And Mm -hmm. you said that in in some way the glass, which, by the way, glass is kind of like liquid. It's not as solid as people think it is. The molecules move around in there. Adjust to the frequency. Is that true? I have talked about that in the past as an analogy for a specific simulation that we've been exploring where we are looking at something that basically has a single frequency in its environment and then it's recombining and forming some structure that's good at resonating. And so there's there's a clear analogy there. I should not claim that I have a worked out and detailed theory of wine glasses and (laughs) opera singers or, so to speak, glasses while being exposed to uh, some kind of auditory drive. In my simple-minded way, I thought perhaps you meant this, that as the sound vibrates the glass, some of those molecules move around in a way that's a little more stable and better adjusted to that frequency, so the glass doesn't break in some cases. Um, and that you could describe that as adapting to the environment. And you yeah, could des- so I, it's not so much about not breaking. It's more like that, so I start with a glass, I sing at a pitch where the glass is not particularly well-shaped to vibrate with that pitch. And then what's going to happen is it is going to fluctuate around and change its shape very slowly and imperceptibly. And also, it is experiencing this oscillating drive in its environment. It's getting whacked by the sound waves that are hitting it. And the point is that as you're jumping around through all these different little shapes, the fact that you're getting whacked by these sound waves is going to turn out to cause changes in shape to happen that are better at moving with sound waves that oscillate at a certain frequency. So that's the the general argument, is that basically you move better with a drive at a certain frequency, and because you're better at moving, you can change your shape faster, and so there can be this kind of feedback where you can end up changing your shape in the way that accelerates your absorption of work and your further motion and continued changing your shape. But if you think about what it takes to move well with a much more complicated song, with a much more fluctuating and somewhat predictable but somewhat seemingly random signal, like, for example, you know, the temperature in Boston every day for the last 100 years or something like that, where there are these correlations that make it somewhat predictable, but it's also very hard to know from one day to the next what exactly it's going to be, then you start to put pressure on the system to discover shapes that exhibit dynamics that are well-matched to that very complicated and drive. Uh, and I think in order to be matched to a very complicated drive, the expectation, which is really an intuitive leap at this point that we need to explore, uh, is that you yourself need to become much more complicated in your organization. So you've described a way in which a simple system might adjust to its surroundings. Uh, and in so adjusting, in a way, it is sort of predicting what's going to happen next. In the simplest case, what's going to happen next is exactly what happened in the past, and the structure doesn't need to change further. But one could imagine a situation where things are behaving, uh, you know, in much more complicated ways, and the structure would adjust to, you know, predict from a number of possible outcomes. And that's where you start to get more and more complex structures, even in non-living uh, things, at least hypothetically. Yeah, so that's where we are in our current research right now. Basically, we have a principle for learning to move with a single pitch in the environment. Uh, and then now what we're trying to do is add more different pitches and more complexity to the signal that this system is experiencing and see whether that ends up putting pressure on it to find even more complex states of organization that have a richer array of behavioral properties that might seem even more lifelike. Great. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Sure. Very happy to. 
So I hope that uh, gets us a little further along in understanding Jeremy England's ideas. In any case, it is as far as we're going to go today. But I will be back next week with another show, and you can always check us out online and listen to past shows at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, or you can catch us on just about any old podcast app. That includes iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and lots of others. So long until next week. Thank you.